1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 on page 1220 of your Bibles. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, you should do it with all the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it was your spirit who caused Peter to write these words down 2,000 years ago. And we just pray now that that same spirit would speak into our lives and our hearts, so that we are changed and we become more like the people you want us to be. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of the total perspective vortex. Total perspective vortex comes from a series of books called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's described as being the most savage psychic torture that a sentient being can undergo. The most savage psychic torture that a sentient being can undergo. It's fiction. Okay, this is... Don't worry. What the Total Perspective Vortex does is gives you a sense of the vastness of the universe. Of how vast and amazing the whole of creation is and then shows how small and unimportant you are. And within the book, that sense of just how big everything else is, how pathetic and small you are, reduces you to nothing. Now, the Bible actually has some of its own total perspective vortex moments. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. The psalmist says, when I look out at the night sky and I just see everything, I just think, I'm nothing. I'm unimportant. I don't know if you watch um, Brian Cox's TV series, The Wonders of the Solar System, things like that on TV, and you just see how amazing the universe is. It's very easy to think like the psalmist. What is mankind? What are human beings? We're nothing. We're unimportant. And even Peter, earlier on, you've been studying through 1 Peter, has his total perspective vortex moment. He's quoting one of the psalms. All people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade. Human beings, 
the best of you dies. All the things you make, all the wonderful things you do, they all pass away. Human beings, compared to the universe, you are small. In the light of eternity, in the light of the vastness of the universe, it is really easy for human beings to get depressed and to see ourselves as nothing. But Peter, again, earlier on in the passage, verses you've looked at, rescues us from this. Peter tells us in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God is massive, but you belong to him. You are his. The universe is huge. But the scriptures tell us that one day, through Christ, we will reign over the universe. The Bible says that through a relationship with Christ, the one who made heaven and earth, and the one who will come to judge heaven and earth, we are integrated into the vastness We are integrated into eternity. We matter. You can look at the night sky and you see all the stars and you think, how small, how pathetic I am. But that's wrong. If you look at the night sky, you think, Jesus made that. He placed all of those stars. And I'm going to reign with him. Christians have a place in the whole of eternity. And because of that, The way we live our lives matters. If all we were were bags of cells, water and a few organic molecules, and we were going to die and be no more, to be honest, the way we live wouldn't matter. Do what you like. Who cares? It's all going to end. But that's not what we are. We are beings who have been reconciled to God and who have a place in eternity. And so our actions and everything we do is tied into the whole of eternity. And our actions and the things we do matter. And in this passage that we've just read, Peter gives us four pictures, four issues from eternity. Four issues from the vastness of the universe. And says each of these should impact you in your life. The first of these comes in verses 1 to 3. Christ suffered. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Jesus suffered. That happened is an eternal reality. God became man and God suffered. And because God suffered, we are likely to suffer too. And again, this is a a theme that has been picked up right throughout 1 Peter. It's a book written to a church being persecuted. And Peter said, this is normal because God himself in Jesus Christ suffered. Now, We need to clear up some 
um, misunderstandings of the, in these verses. Some people sort of read it, said, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And they sort of take this as some sort of medieval monk who causes himself to suffer and that deals with sin. I don't know if you remember the albino monk from the Da Vinci Code. You've suffered physically, therefore you've finished with sin. This verse isn't saying that if you suffer physically, you will not sin anymore. What this verse is saying is if you are prepared to put your line, life on the line for Jesus, you're on the right track. And your tendency, your capacity to rebel against Jesus is being dealt with. It isn't saying, as some people have taken through history, if you whip yourself, you won't sin anymore. It doesn't work like that. What it is saying is if you put your life on the line for Jesus, if you're willing to go out of your way, if you're willing to be hurt for Jesus, then your life is on track and you're not living just for yourself. You're not living just to satisfy yourself. So where are we on this one? How do we measure up to this idea of being prepared to suffer for the gospel? Being prepared to suffer for Jesus? Let me be honest, it isn't easy. The whole point of suffering is that it is suffering. And suffering isn't nice. When we lived and worked in Africa, I got repeated attacks of malaria. Um, it isn't nice having malaria. I really hated it. Being in hospital with malaria isn't something that I want to do for a weekend. And there were times I was angry at God. But you know, I took that on the chin in the end. I said, I'm following Jesus. He suffered. I need to be prepared to suffer. And then my kids got malaria. Now, as a parent, it's bad when you're ill. But as anyone who's a parent knows, it's far worse when your kids are ill. And my kids weren't following Jesus. They weren't following a call in their lives. They'd been, just been dragged off to Africa with their mum and dad. And there were times when I really struggled with what God was calling me and my family to go through. But in the end, all of that stuff did work. It was a privilege to suffer. It wasn't that bad. I didn't die, obviously. But to suffer for Jesus was a privilege. It did help me to grow. It helped me to deal with some issues in my life. But you know, if anybody said to me now, would you go off and live in the middle of Africa in an isolated village without running water or electricity? I would find it hard to do what I did because I know what it entails. It isn't easy to suffer. We can get very blasé. Later on this morning, we'll be singing one of my favourite songs that talks about suffering, talks about our reaction when God takes things away. Can I suggest that as we sing it, we don't just automatically clap our hands and raise our hands. We actually stop and think what it means to suffer for Jesus. But actually, you know, most of us are not going to suffer that greatly. The likelihood in Southampton of you being thrown to lions is limited. It's probably not going to happen. But we do have to turn our backs on the way we might want to live. 
don't know about you, but when I read verse 3, it reminds me of Saturday night in the centre of Southampton. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, carousing, orgies, etc., etc. You want to be out with your mates, your friends from work. And you can't as a Christian. Or perhaps, there's a good middle class group here, we're not into binge drinking. He goes on to talk about idleness. Detestable, uh, not idleness, idolatry. Detestable idolatry. Should you be worshipping your brand new car, your iPad, your Mac Air, or your new PC for that matter? Do we fall into idolatry? Or should we be willing to give up these things for Jesus? Is the suffering that we need to do for Jesus to not get a new car, to not do the good holiday we're planning. Is Jesus calling us to that? There was a man lived in a country where it was illegal to hunt porcupines, to eat porcupines. And he was out with his gun hunting. And his friend came to him and said, what are you doing? You know it's illegal to eat porcupines. And he said, yeah, I'm not eating a porcupine, I'm hunting a porcupine. And a few hours later he came back into the village with a porcupine over his shoulder. And his friend said, look, it's illegal to eat porcupines. He said, I'm not eating a porcupine, I'm just carrying a porcupine. A, few, a little while later, the porcupine's in the pot. And the friend says, look, it's illegal to eat porcupines. He said, I'm not eating porcupine, I'm cooking a porcupine. Comes back later and the man is sitting there chewing on a bone. He said, what are you doing? It's illegal to eat porcupine. He said, I'm not eating a porcupine, I'm tasting the porcupine. And pretty soon he tasted the whole porcupine. Can I ask, and I don't want an answer, how many people here have tasted the whole porcupine? Peter is saying these are things we shouldn't be doing. Are we tasting the whole porcupine? Jesus suffered. Judgment is coming, verses 4 to 6. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to men in regard to their body and live according to God in regard to the spirit. If you're a Christian and if you're living faithfully to Jesus, you are going to come across as being odd. Because you don't do some of the things your friends do. You don't share their values. And they might laugh at you. But your friends should be careful when they laugh at you. Because they are going to be judged by God. Now this isn't a very comfortable word. But they will be judged. But the point is for us Christians. Isn't that we should say. Well they can take the mick out of me as much as they like. They're going to get zapped. Your friends. Your family. People you know. People you care for. They will face the judgment of God. If they don't know Jesus. This isn't a call to self-satisfaction. I'm going to be okay, I'm going to heaven, they're not. This is a call to get out and tell people about Jesus. The hardest thing in the world is witnessing to your family. It's really difficult. But when your family members die, you wish you'd witness to them. People will face judgment. 
And this is the reason why the gospel is preached. So that people can be forgiven. And we've got to get out there and preach the gospel. It's not just the Muslim folks in Africa who don't know peace and who will have to face judgment. People here may not believe in judgment, but they have to face it anyway. The next theme that comes up is the end of the world is nigh. Verses seven to nine. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without, gr- without grumbling. The end of the world is nigh. Let's face it, there's nothing quite like the end of the world to give us a total perspective vortex moment. Everything you know, everything you're familiar with will be gone. And that is coming. The end of the world is on its way. But because we as Christians have a connection with Jesus, the end of the world brings no fear. Because the creation of a new heaven and earth over with Jesus will reign, we will be part of that. And what Peter is calling us to here is to live as though we were in eternity. In eternity, in the new heaven and earth, we will love God perfectly. We will love one another perfectly. And Peter's saying, get on with it now. Start loving God. Start loving one another as if you were living in eternity. Be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. In eternity, you will see God face to face. So now, we need to be praying as if we saw God face to face. I won't ask how many people struggle with their prayer lives. All I'll say is if you do not struggle with your prayer life, be thankful. Because most of us do. I don't have a silver bullet. I don't have the one magic answer to how to be a good prayer. The only suggestion I can make is to stop thinking of prayer as just a solitary activity. Pray with friends. Join a prayer triplet. Discipline and other people around you can be a great help. As Westerners, as individualists, we think of prayer very much as something between me and God. The Bible talks of it as being between the community and God. So the, if you know the secret of being a great prayer, tell me. Because I want to learn it. But in the meantime, the best solution I have in the time we've got is think about praying regularly with others. Meet up for coffee with someone. Breakfast on the way to work. Whatever. But find a way of praying with other people. Show deep love for one another. In heaven, we will love perfectly. You've heard the rhyme. To live above with saints we love. That will be glory. To live below with saints we know. It's quite another story. In eternity, we will love each other perfectly. And Peter says, and now here on the planet, love one another perfectly too. But you know what? Peter is realistic. He knows that we'll fail. And he says, because love covers up a multitude of sins. We have to love one another because actually we fail one another. There are hurts. There are grudges. But love covers over those. There's going to be a time 
for prayer at the end of the service. And can I just ask that we take 30 seconds now and that you just before God ask, is there someone that I am not loving in the church that I ought to? Is there someone I haven't forgiven? Is there someone I'm bearing a grudge against? I'm just going to take 30 seconds and I want you to, before God, ask that question. And if there's something you need to deal with, come up here and be prayed for. Pray with people later. Offer hospitality one to another. Or as the New Living Translation says, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. This isn't come down with me, where you set out to impress people and everybody gets a meal. Are there people in church who are lonely? Are there people in church who really need time with a family and who can't pay you back? What can you do to open up your house for a meal? Are there people who need a bed for the night? A bed for the week? It's a challenge that Peter's giving us. And he's giving us this challenge because the end of the world is coming. And we need to live as though we were living in eternity. With open hearts and open houses. And the last of our themes, God is glorious, 9 to 11. Or 10 to 11, actually. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the power and glory forever. Everything we do, Peter is saying, brings praise and glory to Christ. Now, we start off thinking just how big the universe is, how big God is. God is glorious. God doesn't need me. And yet, the most amazing thing in the Bible message is that God has given us the ability to bring him glory. The almighty God who made heaven and earth, we can bring him glory through our actions. What I do A short, fat, bald bloke from Sunderland can make a difference and can bring glory to God. It's a remarkable thing. And And Peter is saying, we should act. We should do things that bring God glory. We can make a difference to God. We can make God bigger, is essentially the meaning of this passage. If you can serve, serve What should you be doing? It would be really interesting to ask John up here and say to John, what are the list of things that need doing in the church? And then to get you all to fill out a form to show what you're good at. And I bet the list of things that need doing and the list of things that you can do would be very, very similar. But I suspect that some of those things that you could do are not being done. I bet lots of you are also serving very faithfully but there are still gaps Peter says 
If your gift is serving, serve. If your gift is speaking, speak. Why? Because in doing what we do, we can bring glory to God. But let me just challenge you a bit further. It's not just what we can do, it's where we can do it. You can make a difference in Muslim Africa. You can make a difference anywhere in the world that God takes you to. What is God saying to you that you should be doing? And what is God saying to you where you should be doing it? You might think, oh, I'm just an administrator. I don't have preaching skills. I'm not a translator. I'm not a great evangelist. You know, the world is full of evangelists doing administration really, really badly. And not enough administrators and accountants on the mission field. I was mission director for Wycliffe in Ivory Coast, and our accountant was a really good translator. And he was a pathetic accountant. It, our finances were six months behind. I used to find out what income I'd got six months after I'd got it, <coughs> by which time I'd spent it. If you're an accountant, please talk to me. <laughs> what is God calling you to do, and where is he calling you to do it? So very quickly, just to s- summarise... Four themes. Christ suffered, and we should expect to suffer. Judgment is coming. What about your friends, your family who are going to face judgment? The end of the world is nigh, and we should be living as though we're living in eternity. And God is glorious, but amazingly, we can make him even more glorious through the way we act. And so... What are you going to do about it? And where are you going to do it? Thank you.